I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. As my guest a few weeks ago, headmistress Lucy Elphinstone alluded to, our children's world has been rocked by several significant events over the last year, one of which was the Everyone's Invited movement, a website on which school-aged children were encouraged to share their experiences of sexual misconduct. The world was shocked at the testimonies of children who described unacceptable behaviour that seemed normal in the world they inhabited. This has initiated the pressing need to change, to change this shocking behaviour, to change the acceptance of it, to teach our children how to say no and empower them to actually say it, mean it and also hear it. They may need to know their basic maths and English, but a key part of what we teach them is about consent. But how do we do this? This wasn't a part of the conversation many of us had when we were growing up. To many parents, as much as they see its importance, it's quite an awkward conversation to have. With me today is someone who has never shied away from a difficult conversation. Saskia Bujo is a relationship and sex educator who's been teaching young people for almost 20 years. Saskia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank uh, you. We obviously chatted, um, gosh, a few months ago about, uh, what did we talk menstruation. about? It was exactly menstruation. And yeah. I remember having this conversation about consent and thinking, oh my God, we need to have this conversation. And then everyone's invited happened. And obviously now consent is very much a part of what we're talking about. Um, I want to talk a little bit about well, how we have this conversation with our children, because it's not easy. I mean, how young should we start having this conversation? Mm. I mean, it's interesting that we refer to consent as a conversation. I think it's much more, it's, it's a lot like the talk around sex and how to have babies. It's something that we're really trying to weave in from as early as they can walk and talk. Um, and I think as adults, we sort of tend to default to the idea of consent being just about sex. And so we naturally think, oh, well, I don't need to have that conversation yet. But actually, consent is about choice, about permission, about bodily autonomy, about safety. Um, and in schools, it's very much to do with safeguarding as well. Um, and it's really we something that needs to be practiced. So we talk about practicing consent, practiced and understood way before it has anything to do with sex. And so for very young children who aren't maybe in the verbal stages yet, they are in the physical stages of expressing themselves through gesture and through physicality we are also practicing consent with them by showing them there is a certain way of behaving um and i think 
as the child gets older, we're not necessarily using the word consent, but we are giving them the space and the time to be able to practice consent. So the other part around consent is we often think of it as the answer, but actually it's about the question and the answer. So consent is something that is a sort of two-way street. It's about someone asking a question but it's also about what the answer is. But we're really trying to look out for those physical cues around you know, whether someone's sh- showing early warning signs, about maybe they've said yes to something, but they're really uncomfortable about it. So it's about the person asking the question, also trying to read you know, what is the physicality around that. Um, I think there's less and less time to practice consent with our children we're so busy and I think 90% of the time our children are following instructions, whether it's at school, whether it's at home, put your shoes on, brush your teeth, um, do this activity. And we've sort of, we haven't really given them the space to understand why. We need to look at the why more Um, because what's happened is, is there's been a lot of sort of mindless instruction following and now we're expecting children to be in a sexual situation and be able to remove themselves from it but they've never been able to say no to something and as parents we don't want to hear no No. it's really difficult to hear no we don't have time Um, but there is opportunity and I'm sure we'll go through lots of examples yeah well I'd love to hear like what does that conversation sound like to a two-year-old because obviously I always try to not give my children too many choices. You know, what do you want for dinner? What mm. do you know what? I'm just cooking you and you're going to eat it because yeah. ugh, life is hard enough. Yeah. And similarly, when I say, would you like to put your shoes on? What I really mean is put your shoes on. Yeah. Um, so what does that look like to a sort of young child? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the questions that we're asking, um, there's not that many answers that we really can take in terms of time and space and having to get on with the day. It's not practical for us to negotiate in that in that time um and i think things like brushing your teeth putting your shoes on you know those are parts of the day that they need to do to get on with their day and so that's about them becoming independent learners for the sake of being able to get to school um for example i think the really the really important consent conversations are where there's a little bit more nuance. Um, And so, for instance, the food one is really interesting because I know a lot of parents struggle with food and feeding their children, especially at a young age. Um, And, you know, sometimes there can be aspects of control and then phobias are created and there's, you know, force feeding and it's a real battleground food. Um, The other one is is hair brushing, which I know um, you you mentioned in your notes, but... I think those are the the spaces and the times where we need to let go a little bit. And that's really difficult. We need to let go a little bit, but at the same time, try and empower them to see the greater good of the situation. And it's really hard to do that. But I think the greater good is um, what they will hopefully in years to come look back on and go, I'm so pleased that mummy gave me my five a day because, um, you know, I'm really healthy now or, you know, something I've, I've simplified that, but 
No, but hairbrushing is perfect. Yeah, so the hairbrushing is tricky because I have that battle with my eldest. And so even if she brushes her hair really well, I know there'll be inevitably knots at the back. And so we have a rule that we alternate. Yeah. I mean, I guess the alternative with, I have exactly the same problem with Iona. She just hates having a hairbrush. And I, I remember having exactly the same thing. We both got really sensitive scalps. And um, I actually one time just let it get really knotted. And even she said, we need to brush it. And it took us so long to do it that she said, mummy, actually, I really don't want to do that again. And now she's much better at brushing her hair. So it wasn't me sort of forcing her. Mm. It was her realizing that actually brushing your hair regularly is a much better option than letting it get totally knotty and having yeah. to cut half the knots out. We want children to be able to say no and not have to explain why, because later on when they're in a sexual situation, that, that feeling of I don't want to do this is, is a very much a, a, a sixth sense. It's a gut feeling. It's a this doesn't feel right. And we need to make, bring that voice out as early as we can in the early years, because if we quieten that down, um, what we're saying is, is actually you just go along with this. Yeah, and that you feel just scary. Grit um, your teeth and think of England. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so there are, you know, when we think about consent, we think about it. When I'm teaching it anyway, we talk about consent being nothing but a very enthusiastic yes. And that means that anything below that is not consent. It's something that feels right. It's something that feels safe. It's something that isn't in return for anything. This is this is then in a sexual context. Yeah. Yeah. Not the hairbrushing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it could be something like um, going on a play date. And so I think a lot of parents, you know, they arrange play dates and they don't even check in with their children. I know I've done that. And then my eldest has gone, actually, I, I don't really have such a great time last time. I, I don't really want to. And I... And, it's tempting to sort of try and resolve that, but I think we've got to really listen to that voice because there's, there's an awkwardness and a discomfort there that maybe they're not able to express. Um, and the same thing goes for extracurricular activities that we've paid for in advance. I don't want to do it anymore, mummy. Well, I've paid for it in advance. And so, you know, that also is a really gray area of how much do you push? And then when they're really, really in what we call the sort of panic zone of showing physical discomforts and sweating and heart beating and, and really just not wanting to indulge in it anymore, I think that's where we are setting ourselves up for them being able to come to us later when they need help getting out of a situation without having to justify. Um, well, it's that important conversation that you alluded to that you said yes but you changed your mind and actually in a sexual context that's such an important one to know that you can articulate Mm. but also for other people to hear I mean if someone's kissing you and you say oh I don't want to do this anymore whether you're the person that wants to carry on kissing or the person that wants to stop both you know you both have to recognize that I thought I did but now I don't is a really valid sentiment to have yeah and, and I think there's responsibility on both parts there. And when we teach about consent from year five up, it's very much about, you know, that person who wants to kiss more than the other, also listening in for the cues. Um, and then the person who, who's on the receiving end of that being able to feel empowered enough to say no. And we're really hoping that those things can kind of grow together at the same time because 
we've, we've silenced the person who isn't able to say no and all these societal factors around misogyny and um, expectation around what you're wearing therefore you know what what that means you know slut shaming and and cancel culture and all those terms around you know making misconceptions about what women are wearing and therefore what you're entitled to I think that whole entitlement um, conversation is very very ingrained in young people as early as 10 or 11 that's what I witness in schools um, and those messages are coming from them, coming at them from all angles in society. And I think they really, really need dismantling. Mm. I mean, I wonder whether, you know, you mentioned about sort of playdates and, and their, you know, ability to change their minds, which absolutely I get. But there's also something that I feel really strongly I want to teach my children, and that's to kind of commitment. That if you have said yes to something and then you say no, you might be disappointing someone. And I had the situation, I, you know, I had asked her, do you want to go on this play date? She was really enthusiastic. Mommy, I'd love to, yes. And then when the day actually came, she said... She was a bit sort of uh, about it. And I said, well, listen, you know, we can we can make an excuse, yeah. but your friend is going to be a bit disappointed because I know that she's made plans. And I only thought about it. I said, I don't want you to go unless you really do want to go. But I also didn't want her to just flake. Yes. You know, and I, I get this point of a really enthusiastic yes. Mm. But life is sometimes full of unenthusiastic yeses. There are some days I don't really want to record a podcast yeah. or I don't want to go to work. Yes. And actually, if I've been brought up to only do stuff that I really want to do, am I going to be you know branded a snowflake or is my child going to be branded a snowflake I do think obviously when it comes to sort of sex and consent Mm. you should only ever get involved if that's what you absolutely want to do you should never Mm. feel obliged to have sex or kiss someone or be physical with Mm. someone but there are things in life that you do have to honor even though you might not be that committed to it and you know with the kind of the clubs thing you know we're the ones paying for it they're mm. the ones who'd said that they did want to do it and part of me just says you know you have committed and I feel that if you invest you're going to get mm. more out of it than if you just sort of give up mm. at the first kind of mm. chance yeah does that sort of muddy that conversation a little bit well or? no I think it's first of all about knowing our children and what they're capable of um, and where their comfort zones are so when we talk about consent we talk a lot about comfort zones being about are where we feel most comfortable it's where we feel safest um, but perhaps a little bit unchallenged Um, and then we talk about beyond the comfort zone being our stretch zone and that will be those situations like those extracurricular activities that we just know they're going to love but maybe they just don't really want to indulge in it yet and I think in the early years in the primary um, in the primary years that is our role as as their parents to help them venture out of that comfort zone and and in order to extend it out really is what is what we're trying to help them do to be bold yes and that's where the resilience is built as well so i think you know absolutely what you're saying about trying to build that resilience and and making them experience new things and also not letting people down also is another one but the not letting people down hits a bit of a trigger with me because i hear that so much with young people in schools about I have to do this because I'm going to let someone down and I think that's you know that's the overwhelming feeling that they have about completing activities it what's lacking is the the own initiative the own will of trying to get into something because it will do me good or for my good Mm. um so I think to answer your question it really is up to us to help them work out what's safe um, and what's unsafe. So I think 
probably you, you, you nailed that with Iona because you said, you know, we've committed to this. It's now a little bit late um, to back out. And also you might have a really nice time. Um, and I think we don't want them to sort of feel that they can change their minds so quickly. And especially if we know it's a safe situation, I think we should try and encourage them to be also responsible in that sense. Mm. Um, but I think if it's a situation that is not familiar to us and they're really trying to give us a clue about their discomfort, that's where we've got to come in and give them permission to back out from something. And when does that conversation change from, you know, being a bit more about sex when it comes to consent? I mean, obviously, age sort of year six, year seven, year eight, boys and girls are suddenly becoming aware of each other in a sort of different context to what maybe they were aware of before. And it obviously sort of starts slowly with sort of a little bit of interest and Mm. who's going out with who. Presumably, this is the stage you start talking about consent specifically with regard to sexual experiences yeah so ideally consent begins with our own bodies and bodily autonomy and um, what are parts of my body that my friends can touch strangers can touch um, adults can touch and so when we do that with young children in schools we have a sort of traffic light system with a little cut out paper uh, person and we use those colors to show the areas of our body that um, can and can't be touched or maybe can be touched. So that's a fascinating activity to do because everyone's paper cutout dolls are always completely different. Um, Really interestingly, sometimes you will have just the nipple in red, but everything outside of that might be orange or green. And what age are we talking? So that's year five, year six. Yeah. So that's the beginning of not only working out what my comfort zone is, but working out that everyone has different comfort zones. Um, And then around consent, you know, you have children who might begin to self-pleasure. So you're talking about that being okay, provided it's done in um, a private space. Um, Once they can begin to work out what feels nice for themselves or what could feel nice, um, then that's when you start to talk about receiving touch from another person. And in a sexual context, the, the conversation has to absolutely be about consent. And it has to absolutely be about respect. And it has to be about safety. And all those things really need to merge in at the same time. Um, Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think there's, there's a lot of issues around what expectations are around a first sexual experience and now with the new relationship and sex education guidance, we've sort of moved away from this idea of virginity and the first time. Um, we're trying to make all physical activities that involve touch or affection to do with consent. So hopefully before it comes to something sexual, we've already worked out what feels nice, what doesn't feel nice and with who that feels nice and being able to also vocalise what doesn't. Um, with secondary school children, we talk about sex being, about consent being freely given. Um, what do you mean by that? So that means that not under any duress, so I haven't received anything in return for it. Um, a big part of the curriculum is child sex exploitation, so there's obviously a lot of situations of children being exploited in return for um, affection, uh, emotional um, attachments. And those are the situations that we're trying to talk to children about. But before we have all those alarming conversations, we need to talk about what a healthy relationship is and what feels what is a normal, healthy relationship that, that means consent, essentially. Um, I'm digressing a lot, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, I'm just sort of thinking back, obviously, I've got children who, as hopefully, well, as far as I'm aware, and I say hopefully just because I hope I'm not unaware of this, are a while off that sort of, I think mm. that's just, because also there's an age, there's a huge discrepancy in when mm. people, children start to maybe feel that they are a bit more curious and have that innate desire to touch someone or kiss someone or have that kind of affection. I think there is a huge, huge, I mean, I was not interested in boys till I was about 17. I mean, yeah. a very, very late starter. Um, and I know that if I were to talk to my children about sort of sex specifically, mm. they would be like, mommy, I don't want to talk about this. This is just so not me right now. Yeah. When is, I mean, obviously there is going to be a time. So mm. do you have that conversation regardless, even if it's making them feel uncomfortable? Or do you just, what, what do you do there? I think that it's tempting to sort of label the word consent when it's to do with sex. But I read something the other day that was to do with um, Snow White, the Disney movie. And she is lying there on her glass bed or whatever it is. And the prince walks up to her and kisses her. And they were saying, well, actually, is this consensual? <laughs> and there's no, there's, she's unconscious. Yeah, she's unconscious. <laughs> and she doesn't even know this guy. Um, so it's, it's, there are lots of situations around us where consent is not given. And I think it's useful to, to not necessarily demonize Snow White or whatever she did or didn't do, but to say, oh, that's really interesting. Um, she, she doesn't even know him. You know, how would you feel if that was you lying on there and you woke up and this man was kissing you? <laughs> um, so I think just trying to help the children think a little bit more critically and question these narratives that have really, really been set in stone over generations. Um, 
but you're right actually I suppose making it about not about them having sex but about other people and the situation about what is it right and actually um I went to talk recently about sex and and they said that you know watching things like Modern Family and Friends Mm. is actually a really good exercise in how not to behave because obviously they're quite dated now those TV programs and there are a lot of situations where you can then talk about that issue that very much will apply to them at some stage as an important lesson to learn but not with them in the in the narrative but they're learning from that you know should I don't know Ross have kissed Rachel when he didn't want her to kiss him then that you're not you're not telling your child you mustn't kiss someone if they don't want to or you shouldn't be kissed if you don't want to you're looking at another kind of third party and maybe that's less kind of icky definitely and I think that's why books are such a great resource because the child doesn't feel like they're in this sort of hot seat and, and I think as parents, we do assume that it's this big kitchen table conversation. And actually, the value is in the other messages that are around us that arise more sort of organically. Um, so there's the, the, the most valuable conversations that I hear from parents are often in the car because it's sort of this therapeutic moment where there's no eye contact. So you're not feeling so um, on the spot to have to give an answer. And... You know, the situation really, really gives itself well to, the, to you know, facilitating open conversation. And you're right, it's not about telling them what's wrong. It's about tr- helping them to work out for themselves what's wrong. And I think that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to give them a toolkit that they can use to work it out for themselves. Well, and also, we're never going to work out exactly when they're going to be in the situation where they have to make the right decision. So yeah. what we need to do is kind of arm them with the understanding that when they're in that situa- situation, they can, you know, and they can think back to Ross and Rachel, whatever it was, Snow White, and go, yeah. Ooh, maybe not. Yes, yes. But you're right. I mean, I find, you know, even having the radio on, it's like having another p- a person's conversation in the background of your conversation. And we often have Radio 4 on. And sometimes yeah. they talk about quite punchy things. You know, I remember my children aged about five going, what? is female genital mutilation yeah. and but actually it's quite good to sort of introduce you know conversations that might be a bit difficult to introduce and might not na- naturally have kind of cropped up yeah. in what you talk about to then sort of introduce the idea that also you're happy to talk about anything yeah yeah I think we absolutely have to use those moments um and then you know we, we we've been demonizing Snow White but Equally, you know, Cinderella has a magically consensual moment with the prince who she dances with all night and they're holding each other. And and I think also trying to find those moments where there is this acceptance on both fronts. Um, and, you know, trying to work out, you know, how the neighbour got pregnant and, and talking about that as a clue as to trying to work out what they know. I guess... Um you know, there's a lot of criticism for sort of overly romantic films. But when I sort of reflect on consent for me, I feel that, you know, if you like sexual activity, like there is a time where you, you just have to do it. Like as in you, you want to do it so much. You, if you want to kiss someone, you just have to do it. And I think that's a really important thing to articulate to children that when you really do want to have a sexual experience with someone, it's almost like, like eating yes. it's something you really want to do and, and I yes. always thought you know those overly romantic films that do slightly romanticize life but I do think they reflect kind of really true desire very well that sort of passionate electrical I need you right now and mm. I think that's a really important sentiment to articulate to children that actually if you're thinking 
I, I do fancy him kind of because my friends have told me that I should and maybe I flirted with him mm. a bit too much and maybe I should kiss him. That's not. Like, if you want to kiss someone or have sex with someone, it's almost like nothing could stop you because you're so desperate to do it. Mm. Um, and I suppose then watching, you know, like Richard Curtis films are really good at that. That yeah. sort of like absolute desire for one another. That is something that's real. That is something yeah. that's not just in the movies. And you might not experience it for a while. Um, but that's actually when... You do want to, you know, that's what that kind of what desire really feels like. Yeah. And I think we really need to bring those stories back to the front line for children. Because if there's anything that these last few months have shown us is that the idea of wanting to do it has been completely lost for them. And that they have felt that they've had to. um, Because that is the way that things are now. Um, for lots and lots of different reasons, um, partly to do with social media and their phones, partly to do with the misogyny in politics. Um, you know, I'm very cross with Donald Trump still for having had one of the most powerful seats in the world and for getting away with speaking about women the way he has. All those factors have been feeding into this narrative that just perpetuates misogyny. Um, and it's so much up to us, and I really believe that, to bring those moments that you're talking about, the Rich Curtis films, that Cinderella, Cinderella moment where they're dancing together. You know, my five-year-old loves that, that film. There are lots of things wrong with that movie as well, but they're discussion points. Um, and I think we really need to bring back that pleasure around intimacy and the desire and the... The fancying of someone, we know how, you know, how much that is part of a chemical reaction as well within us. And, and we've all been through that. And it is such a joy when it's reciprocated. But that has been lost for lots of young people who have been had, who have had no safety network to speak of and who have been using an anonymous platform on which to disclose because their support networks have really failed them. Um, And when I was growing up, it was exciting because you had your friends and it was exciting because you had your family. And now you've got this very unforgiving, very public domain, which is the Internet, where you can't make foolish mistakes anymore because they are permanently out there for everyone to see. And, you know, we made lots of those foolish mistakes and we, we forgot about them and we moved on and we learnt. And now it's it's a really, really unforgiving place for young people um, to to be able to negotiate, um, to not lose face, to stand up to peer pressure. There are but lots that of peer pressure has always been there. And I remember distinctly, you know, I'm 43 now, but I remember that chat around who had kissed someone who mm-hmm. hadn't. I hate to say it, you know, these these kind of parties where, you know, had so-and-so, you know, been up to whatever. And then that whole conversation of who was a virgin and who wasn't. Mm. And, and I did, I do remember feeling pressure at like, you know, by 18, kind of most people had. Mm. And if you hadn't, then you, you know, let alone by 20 or 25. And th- there was none of that conversation around really only when you're ready. And if that takes till you're 30, that's absolutely fine and not only is it absolutely fine I really respect you for taking that decision it was almost regarded as a bit wet and a bit like a failure I mean do you think that still exists because I remember that being intensely powerful 20 years ago I think it is that and more now so you know that feeling of peer pressure it still exists in the classroom in the school corridors in the community 
but I think the power of uh, communicating online, of seeing everyone's um, messages, of feeling that you have to send a nude photo of yourself, um, all that just adds to a feeling of loneliness and the education around it hasn't been um, robust enough. So young people are feeling very, very lonely and particularly over lockdown. I think that young people have been obviously on their phones a lot more, but they just haven't known where to turn in order to find the strength to say no to something. Um, I think there was an article in the Guardian a few days ago that, you know, young girls are being asked for nudes nine to ten times a day. And they aren't able to report that and for it to be taken seriously. So after a while, your resilience begins to shatter and you will end up doing what's being asked of you um, because that's what everybody else is doing. Um, and, and how effective is this conversation because obviously you know we've we've had this now conversation since everyone's invited what it's been about a few months yeah a few yeah. months exactly and it has been very much foremost in the press mm. there's been a lot of features around it there have been a lot of professionals like yourself talking about how we have this conversation there are obviously conversations mm. happening within school it's now a re legal requirement to have this conversation is that making a difference do you think um i think it's it's too late in a way but there's a healing process that will begin. So this statutory guidance came in in 2020. Until then, there wasn't a statutory guidance. So young people weren't receiving formal sex education. So if they weren't getting anything from home, essentially they're having to self-educate through the internet and through their peers. So as a mother and as a parent, I was obviously very alarmed when all this came to light, particularly because the person who killed Sarah Everard was a police officer. Um, so there's lots of issues around that as well. Very alarmed. But as a sex educator, I wasn't really surprised because of what I see in schools. Um, because I hear of young girls who have a first kiss episode in the toilet of a school where strangulation is a normalised part of that experience. And that, for me, makes my skin crawl every time I think about that. Um, you know, and the statutory guidance is wonderful, um, but it's not sex positive enough in the sense that we are playing catch up a little bit with this behaviour that's been happening in schools. Um, the, the, the issue around reporting hasn't been taken seriously by schools, so there's a lot of work being done now. I've noticed in, in the last three months, schools are now building a zero tolerance, robust policy when it comes to sexual harassment. And this is as a result of this is as a result of this. Um, schools are now doing a lot more on the consent conversation, a lot more about pornography, but it's all quite reactive for secondary school pupils. For primary school pupils, we're looking at a much more robust idea of what a healthy relationship is. That's being pushed now in primary curriculum. But in secondary now, we're doing so much dismantling because they've created their own scaffold about what is normal. Um, and and that is something that will take time for them and a lot of healing. I know it sounds a little bit cheesy, but there is a lot of healing to be done there in terms of trust being rebuilt for 
young girls, and it's not just young girls, young boys are also um, victims of, of assault and abuse in schools. And it's really dangerous to presume that they're not. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a girl um, who said, you know, she's the same age as me. And she said, I remember at school there was this geeky boy and the girls in the year thought it'd be fun if while he was asleep, they gave him a blowjob. Yeah. And because he was a boy, it wasn't considered sexual harassment. Mm. And, and I think, you know, that it's very dangerous. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about, we hear this term toxic masculinity branded about. And yes, that is definitely one of the issues that needs to be addressed in schools and there are some fantastic organizations now that are coming in um, to to really unpick what is it about this sense of entitlement that you have over the way women dress or over the because she sent you a nude photo does that mean you're then allowed to have physical contact with her there are some fantastic organizations that deal with the toxic masculinity but I think we are missing out on building that sense of solidarity amongst disclosing. So until recently, disclosing has been something that people have been ashamed of doing because it doesn't lead to anything. And you might not even tell your best friend that you've reported something because she'll say, oh, well, you were wearing that that day. You know, are you surprised? And so I think, you know, we need to, it sounds cheesy again, the sisterhood, the solidarity of, of making this not okay essentially i'm simplifying a little bit but on but a, that's on what a, everyone's invited has done you know all those testimonies they've made it acceptable to go this happened to me and yes it's anonymous mm. but it's not okay because i think mm. part of it is the calling out you know you might not be um responsible for the action but actually i think that if you've watched something happen and however you felt about it you've done nothing about it you are to some extent part of that mm, we talk about active bystanders mm. and we're trying to um to really make those surface those active bystanders um to call out mm. uh, the the unreasonable behavior and I, i've worked with a lot of schools who have breathed a sigh of relief at not being named in everyone's invited oh thank goodness you know we're not in there um but actually this rape culture is is pretty much everywhere and so you know, they might breathe a huge sigh of relief, but if we can't take a proactive step in dealing with this in our schools, then we're all complicit, really. Because as we said, it's, it's not just in schools, it's in our communities, it's on a very public political level as well. And I suppose then listening to the news and hearing people called out, and even hearing the conversation around Donald Trump going, that he might be the president of the US, but this is not okay behavior. I think that sort of people learn often from experiences. They learn from their peers doing things. And the fact that people have the confidence to call out however powerful they are, I think is a really good. And I guess presumably, you know, that conversation for me, for my children, it's as much about calling out unacceptable behavior as it is saying you don't do it. Or similarly, if you're a victim, then you talk to someone about it. It's three very important and interlinked conversations. And I'm wondering what is the best way to have that conversation mm. around calling it out? Because that's what's going to elicit the change. If it becomes unacceptable, genuinely unacceptable, because it's kind of been unacceptable in inverted commas, but happens the whole time. So basically acceptable. That's what we need to change. Mm. It's so deeply ingrained that it's not just about empowering the victims to speak out. 
It's about making it a team effort. And so again, involving those active bystanders to find that sort of solidarity to be able to, to call out those that are perpetuating or that are being um, derogatory against women. And so specifically in schools, that has to begin with inappropriate language in the corridors. We automatically assume that it's something that might happen in a lesson or there's been a report, but it has to be in all contexts in schools um, so that the school is a safe place because we can't assume that the child's home environment, that all the children's home environment is a safe place. We'd be too naive to assume that. So schools have to be more robust here, and that's in informal settings, playgrounds, canteens, how safe are the toilets, doing pupil surveys and asking them, you know, what are the areas of the school that we need to make safer for you? This is all the work that I'm seeing beginning to be done now. Um, but calling out your friend who might have done be done who might have done something inappropriate is a really difficult thing to do for a young child well and sometimes it's not a friend but often it's a very powerful individual yeah. like within the sort of there is such someone a someone they might deem to be a friend as well yeah that's mm-hmm. a tricky one mm-hmm. yeah there you know usually there is i mean there's such a big structure in these schools you know mm. it's so intricate but very often it's the ones that seem to have all the power and the respect and mm. and that's a very difficult thing to do mm. I think there isn't a magic wand here, but I know my approach with my own family is to try and dismantle a little bit of what's been said and why it's been said. Um, you know, first of all, well, that must have been very upsetting for you or thank you for telling me. And then trying to work out the context around why that person feels that they have had to make someone feel so very bad or so very small. Um, Because empathy really is at the heart of all this. So it's, it's trying to, again, empower our children, but at the same time, giving them permission to move away from situations which don't feel comfortable for them and finding those trusted adults that they can go to And I think if everyone's invited, shown us anything again, it's that these young people haven't had their trusted adults around that they've been able to disclose to. Um, And trusted adults, we think we have a lot, but actually adults are very busy people. We often don't have time to even just listen, let alone have conversations. So it's about being heard, but also a trusted adult is about being able to help. So those two things together quite hard for young people to find sometimes um and really difficult because and i'm i'm you know uh, guilty of this too i've my i've kind of you know educated my children like don't be a snitch don't be a telltale tit yeah because you know when it's but i only stole my ball i I don't want to know about it Mm -hmm. but actually if someone does something that's more serious i absolutely do want to know about it so we're giving them a conflicting advice don't be a telltale and, you know, that is very much within their culture. I've spoken to my children and I said, you know, you should call out that bad behavior. It's nothing obviously seriously serious, but just disruptive, annoying behavior. And they're like, yeah, but I don't want to be a telltale. I don't want everyone to think. And, and so we do have to do quite a lot of work in terms of reversing that idea that it's not okay to call out bad behavior because you'll be branded a telltale and then no one wants to be your friend. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of a double-edged sword for our children, isn't it? Because they... They are trying to tell us what's going on in their classrooms. 
Um, and I think that's where we, as their trusted adults, aren't going to judge them too much for being a snitch, whereas in a class with their teacher, they will be more exposed. And I think really that's where our role is about um, non-judgmental approach to whatever information they're giving us. Um, and obviously, if you have siblings, if they have siblings at home and there is a lot of sort of snitching going on, I think that can sort of be dismantled a little bit with, you know, well, actually, she's quite upset about it. So she wants to come and talk to me about that. So, you know, I, I would like her to come and tell me. Um, and sometimes, you know, I might say, well, I, I don't need a, a home policeman. Thank you very much. You know, because it's too much. So I think that's our call is as parents to work out where the line is. Well, and also to teach them where the line is, to yeah. teach them the nuance between this is something you let go mm. and this is something you don't let go. And actually yeah. it's not okay. And and maybe, maybe talking about our own experiences. I mean, I had an experience recently where there was a man who exhibited very aggressive um, and intimidating behavior towards me. And I was so prepared to let it go. And it was just after Sarah Evard. And I thought, you know what, I'm not doing this because the only way this is going to change is if we start calling out this kind of behavior. And I could let it go, but that's because I'm quite a strong-minded, confident, mature woman. You know, if this had been a, a vulnerable 18-year-old girl, she would maybe have thought this is the end of the world and been very intimidated. And actually, this man has to learn that this is not okay. So kind of talking through my reasoning of this situation to my children was essentially modeling me being, do I let it go? Or actually, do I not let it go? And that is, you know, it's a very difficult conversation to have. Mm. But it's a, it's a very difficult thing to come. It's problem solving, essentially, on a very mature level. Yeah. And I think sometimes we may have not done what we hoped we'd done. But having that conversation with the children and saying, I was in this situation today, I wish I'd done this. Mm. And even using those moments to show them that we're human too, we make mistakes too, um, I didn't have the courage, um, you know, I lost my confidence, mm. um, but next time I will. Mm. You know, the other day I was with my children, we saw a young girl who, who um, very um, purposefully dropped her sweet wrapper on the floor. And it was very tempting to just walk past and I thought no nope. <laughs> and so I said excuse me I think you've dropped your sweet wrapper on the floor and, and I think my eldest was mortified that I'd even exchange and, and pick someone up on that but um you know it was said very politely and then we just moved away and I could just see this young girl was quite embarrassed I think even on a really simple level trying to be the good citizen you know trying to do the right thing but also being human knowing that we full-on make mistakes, you know, as well, and having and I, those yeah. valuable conversations It's with preparing them. them, isn't it? Because we're not always going to be by their sides in their ear going, do this, do that, because mm. they're going to be autonomous and they're going to be their own people. Mm. But I do think that's where kind of drama and fiction and even reading together, maybe stuff that's potentially quite challenging to say, well, what would you have done in this situation? And do you think they did the right? Because very often looking at behavior that's not ideal teaches you how you should have reacted, you know, that learning from mistakes thing is such an important thing. But ideally, we're not making those mistakes. Ideally, we can watch or experience other people making those mistakes and then think, oh, no, I know how the right kind of behavior goes. Mm. And, and I guess, you know, using fiction and drama and TV programs and films to sort of experience that together and work out what would actually be better is, is a really safe way of, like, getting, you know, behaving in the right way. Yeah. I mean, when we teach in schools, that's... The, the backbone of the lesson is real life examples um, because it's easier to talk about 
what you should tell your friend to do rather than what I should do. Mm. So we have real life scenarios, we have role play, we have debates, we have you know, conversations about things that are happening to others. Mm. Um, and then we know the theory of how we should be reacting. But the idea is that they can then begin to see themselves as the person that's in that situation. Um, so I was teaching a young girl and we were talking about coercive control and she was basically by the end of the lesson able to see that her mum was uh, a victim of this in a relationship, in a new relationship that she was in in the home. Um, and in the following lesson she said, you know miss, I told my mum about the coercive control lesson um, and my mum said, I know. And those are the sorts of comments that really stay with me because I'm very aware that probably that person's situation hasn't changed. But if they can begin to be aware of what the signs are of an abusive relationship, then that young person that was in my class will, will try to look out for those signs. Um, despite having many, many challenges around her, she will have had a few tools few pieces of the puzzle that she can begin to fit together in order to prevent that pattern of behavior repeating itself. So those are the sort of the goosebump moments where you know you can't change someone's life, but with good formal sex education, um, there is really a good chance for young people to have healthier relationships well you're right and and you know that's the very least what we should get but i think what this conversation has shown me is that we can give them a flying start by not being ashamed to have these conversations at home mm. by you know essentially you know even bringing in that sort of third party of you know we're such important models for what behavior is you know acceptable but what is also unacceptable because I think a big part of it you know they're not all going to make the right decisions the whole time and actually they can't be afraid of making mistakes they don't want to actively want them but all of them are going to be in a situation where they think oh I wish I hadn't done that so I think modeling that kind of not ideal behavior but also modeling that you can come back from it yeah. you know like the situation of oh my god I sent him a new selfie I, I really wish I hadn't to have that child in a situation going I'm going to do something about this that's proactive rather than just kiss him because I feel like I should yeah. or her or whatever, you know. Yes. The example that's being used a lot with very young children nowadays is a really simple one. It's grandma coming over wanting a hug. And we haven't seen our grandparents for a long time due to COVID. And we haven't been hugging for a long time. And I know that as a child, we had a lot of pinching of the cheeks, a lot of patting of the head, even patting on the bottom was sort of appropriate. Um, and there was this, this expectation that I had to hug grandma every time she arrived and every time she left. Um, and now with very young children talking about consent, we use this example, <laughs> much to grandma's <laughs> disapproval, about, well, actually, I don't really feel like a hug. Um, so what else could I do that would show grandma that I love her and that I'm happy to see her and I think that's where we need to bring in the role of the parent to act as that communicator to see maybe that oh, my child sort of hiding behind the corridor clearly doesn't want to hug and I've heard myself say it despite I teach this I've heard myself say come on give grandma a hug there's this sense of entitlement that she is entitled to a hug um, and so now we say well, you know what actually is it okay if we high five or fist pump or 
wave or say thanks for coming grandma or a, a substitute that is also something that will be an acknowledgement to grandma um but that is saying to our child i've got your back here i know you don't want to and i think and it's okay and it's okay so that's the really basic example that we've been using a lot um, in I mean, the early years. I remember, and I still do, hate being tickled. I absolutely yes. hate it. And I have this kind of like reflex. I will literally, if someone tickles me, I'll literally go and punch them. Because mm. it renders me so helpless that it is a very threatening thing to do. And people mm. are like, hey, calm down, calm down. I'm only tickling you. But I cannot stand it. And yes. I was always amazed as a child. People, that, that didn't seem acceptable for me to have mm. that sentiment. Mm. Well, tickling is, is, is a bit of a um, tricky one because they're laughing. Mm-hmm. And so often that, that laugh will turn to screaming. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's pleasurable screaming. Mm. So with parents um, in talks that I do, sometimes we, we try and empower the child. Say, you're screaming. Are you saying, please stop? Are you saying no? And trying to say to get them to at least say a word in the screaming. If they obviously look um, mortified and they're really not enjoying any of it, then that's where the adult helps. Um, but sexual abuse usually starts with tickling. So I think that's where really important to also bring in the fact that um, safe and unsafe touch and um, naming body parts as well is also has to be married in with the idea of tickling. Um, so children who are victims of sexual abuse are, are more likely to disclose if they know that they are safe parts of their body that aren't to be touched by strangers. So, yeah, because it's so tempting to, you know, I know my husband comes home from work and there's a lot of tickling that's going on on the carpet and sometimes it's screaming and I need to say, actually, just back off a minute because she doesn't look so happy here. But it's 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 hard for, you know, to find that line as well. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think pets are quite a useful tool, isn't it? You know, so often, how do you teach a little child, a child about kind of consent and what's acceptable and not acceptable? But actually, so often they kind of slightly torture their poor long-suffering labradors and you can say listen look at look at their their body language are they enjoying what you're doing to them or are they absolutely not and because so much about this consent talk is actually listening and reading those signs because sometimes you might not be taught mm. stop i or told stop i don't want this to happen mm. there might be much more nuanced signals that the person is not enjoying what you're doing to them or the thing yeah. and actually that's just as important a lesson yes and the animals um is actually a big part of the consent lesson at the beginning of the lesson is we show the children pictures of animals who are reacting um, for protective purposes. So it might be a pufferfish that's puffed out or an, a squid that's sent jetting ink into the water or a bearded dragon that's puffed out his... And so we talk about what are these animals trying to say? If they could use words, what would those words be? And what about humans? How are they expressing this, um, this, this feeling, this sentiment? In terms of resources, I mean, I think so often you feel confident, you might feel really confident about having this conversation. There might be loads of teachable moments that are going to make this conversation a little bit easier. But if you're someone who is just a little bit more anxious about having this conversation, a little less confident, are there any kind of resources? Are there any good websites that people could go to? I know that your Instagram account is full of kind of great ideas, especially talking about kind of wider things, even kind of encompassing puberty. Um, do you have any tips for us, Saskia? Yes. Um, I mean, books, you can't 
really say enough about books. Um, so if we start with the early years, there's really simple ones, which again, we don't necessarily think about this being about consent, but it's called Don't Touch My Hair. It's by Cherie Miller. And we read this with my three-year-old because she has the most incredible curly blonde hair that everyone wants to touch. And I am trying to get her to use her words when people just go for, you know, a stroke. <laughs> so that's um, a really nice one for the early years. Moving up a little bit, there's one called My Body, What I Say Goes, which is by Janine Sanders, who does a lot of, um, who's an author of a lot of sex ed books. And this one is not only about um, feeling unsafe, but it's also about your safety network. We talked a little bit about that. And private parts are private as well. Um, but the idea of the safety network, I think if there's anything to be taken away from today, it's to make sure that children know where to go if they need to speak to someone. And that includes not only family members, but even in school situations. Um, my nine-year-old absolutely loves this one. It's called Consent for Kids, Boundaries, Respect and Being in Charge of You. And it's the idea that you are the ruler of your own body and you get to decide what you do with it. Um, and it's by Rachel Bryan. And it's um, essentially little comic strips and real life scenarios of where consent is given and where it's not given. So again, when um, you've already said yes to that, so you can't change your mind now, or, you know, but I'll buy you these trainers and then you can do that. Um, lots around animals as well, really interesting. Tickling. <laughs> um, and then how to say no. We haven't really explored that, um, but helping children to find ways of saying no. Um, and those are really difficult, tricky uh, tools to find the confidence to use. For 13, 14 plus, can't recommend this enough. Justin Hancock has a fantastic website called Bish, Best in Sexual Health, and he's the author of this book, which is called Can We Talk About Consent? And it is, yes, about sex, but also about um, what a healthy friendship is, because we would love it if our children's romantic partners were friends and I think all those instances of our children coming home upset about friendship and it's so easy to think that this is something trivial and it's okay, you'll resolve it tomorrow. But actually, if we can put the hard work in for that, that is really helping them manage later on um, and look out for the signs of healthy friendship, healthy relationship, healthy romantic, healthy sexual relationship. Um, and for the parents, because those are obviously all for children, for the parents, Sex Positive Talks to Have with Kids, which is by Melissa Pintakarnagi, who is probably one of the biggest sex educators in the States. Um, and she has a whole chapter on consent amongst everything else. Um, but it's, it's woven into all those areas around bodily autonomy, safety. Um, 
Yeah. Well, we're so lucky that we live in a time that there is, I mean, you brought with you a whole stack of books and just looking at them, some of them you can absolutely see are aimed at the sort of three-year-olds. So even if you sort of think, oh God, I don't have the confidence. Having these books in the house, mm. very often, you know, they'll pick them up and have a look at them on their own, won't they? Absolutely. And I often leave them lying around the toilet. Um, so when they're sitting on the toilet, they can just have a little read through um, or in the car as well, putting them in the, in the side of the door so that they can have a little look. Um, and just finding those moments as well where they've asked you a question, maybe you're not sure how to answer it, but you know there's a page that will pretty much nail it. Um, and, you know, being a bit cheeky and, and leaving it open wherever they might find it. Um, and so I think we absolutely must use these books. There are also some wonderful videos. There's a fantastic video for children called um, Consent for Kids, which is on YouTube. It's not about anything sexual. It's about what consent is on a daily basis, about saying no to grandma, I don't want to hug you, but we can do all these other things. And explaining that there are things children can't consent to, and those are usually legal contracts, um, forms, medical agreements, um, and then sexual stuff. Um, and so that's what we, we refer to when we teach young children who are under the age of 10 or so. We'll say, these are the things you can't consent to legally, and the law is there to protect you, that's why it exists but that doesn't mean you can't consent to all the other stuff around you. So that is what we're trying to dismantle a little bit because they hear consent and they think, oh, school trip consent form, that's what mummy needs to sign. Um, consent is, is happening throughout their day all the time. Mm. Yeah, and they are heard. I think that's such an important thing. You know, mm. it's no point teaching them all about consent if no one hears them. So finding that, you know, as you said, that support network. Mm. Saskia, thank you so much. It's Pleasure. been a real joy to speak to you. If people want to find out a bit more about what you do, what's the best place for them to go? So I have a website, which is saskiabujo.com. So that's saskiabujo.com. And that has um, an about me section with the work that I do in schools and with parents and teachers and a little bit on my menstruation book. And I have an Instagram page, which is factsoflife.ed, where I rant about using proper words for <laughs> private parts and such things. So very honest uh, web uh, Instagram page. <laughs> well, Saskia, real pleasure. Thank you so much. And also for having this important conversation and teaching us how to have these conversations with our children. Thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you found this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Saskia and me, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Acast and Befeila. Well,
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.